Hi, this is Dave Denton of Dave's Voice Works and Radio Guy Reflections and TurnbuckleTrash.net. Two great podcasts, one about professional wrestling and one about radio. And it's all on Anchor. Now, if you haven't heard about Anchor, here's a great way to make a podcast. Use Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast because, hey, it's free. And they give all the creation tools that allow you to record and edit any podcast you'd like to do right from your computer. Use Anchor. Anchor, the best way to podcast and the best way to listen to Turnbuckle Trash or Radio Guy Reflections. This is Radio Guy Reflections. 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 Open your ears real wide and say, Give it to me straight, doctor. I can take it. Here is a complete disc jockey show with all the modern pace of today's exciting radio. So, you guys hear anything good on the radio lately? On November the 2nd, 1920, the first radio station, KDKA of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, signed on the air. Over the years, radio has changed from radio dramas and live performances to the age of the disc jockey. From the man many believe popularized the term rock and roll, Alan Freed, and legendary radio personalities like Wolfman Jack, Dick Clark, Charlie Tuna, Don Imus, and the men who made talk radio what it is today, Rush Limbaugh, Howard Stern, Sean Hannity, and Glenn Beck. Hi, I'm Dave Denton. I'm a radio guy, and even went by that name on the air in Missouri. I'm a radio veteran who started spinning records in 1974 and have seen the industry change from 45s to LPs, carded music, CDs, and now music on hard drives. In this podcast, We'll take a look back, not only at my career, but other men and women who have worked in radio entertaining you. This is Radio Guy Reflections. And welcome to this edition of Radio Guy Reflections, brought to you by Days Voice Works, with services for radio, including commercials, liners, and voice tracking. Now, if you have a project that needs narration, Days Voice Works can do that for you, too. Contact me at Days Voice Works at gmail.com. Remember to spell the word works as W-O-R-X. I also do another podcast called Turnbuckle Trash, where I'm joined by Zane Peterson and Chris Evans. We talk about all things pro wrestling as we get ready for this year's WrestleMania. And on previous editions of Radio Guy Reflections, we've talked to Scott Gerard, the Utah Sportscaster of the Year for 2020, Dave Fannin about his love of rock and roll and politics, KT and Carrie Kelly, a morning team on radio and in life in New Mexico. And today I am going to have myself a blast because I'm going to be talking to the host of a nationally syndicated radio show called The Daily Beetle Break. Of course, we're going to talk about the Fab Four, but more importantly, we're going to find out more about the man behind the microphone. 
Dave Marino was born in Walton Hospital in Liverpool, England on 28 July 1942 and was raised in a flat at 18 Newcastle Road. Dave met John Lennon at the St. Peter's Church Hall Fete in Walton, 6 July 1957. Dave was asked to join the band that day after he played John his rendition of Rocket 88. The boys were mop-toppy in those early years thanks to Dave's new lack of caring how he looked hairstyle. The band had a lot of fun in those early days. Maybe too much fun. And then... America and photo ops galore. The states just couldn't get enough of these lads from Liverpool. And then the world stopped. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. 9 February 1964. The Beatles, with their Edwardian suits and mop top haircuts, made their first American television appearance live on The Ed Sullivan Show. Next came the movies. Dave had an uncanny way of scaring some of the band while making the others laugh. Ringo said Dave was a real cut-up. After years of international success, the band let themselves go just a bit, not caring how they looked. And this frustrated Dave enough to quit. This is the last known picture of Dave with the band. No one is really sure of his whereabouts, which is the way he wanted it to be. Dave Marino, welcome to Radio Guy Reflections. Dave. Woohoo! Oh, the excitement, <laughs> the excitement. <laughs> That's far too much of a buildup, sir, but thank you. Oh, Dave, I, I can't tell you how excited I am because I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, the Daily Beetle Break, but let's before we start talking about that great program, I want to talk more about Dave Marino, the man, because uh, we all get into radio for different reasons. Now, you told me you're from Youngstown, Ohio, and how and when did you get into the crazy world of radio broadcasting? Oh well, you know what? I got a I got a late start actually. It, it, this might be semi entertaining, just because somebody may go, "Oh yeah, that happened to me too." I I was when I was young. Our big top 40 station in town was called WHOT, and I just happened to live right down the street from the guy who was the program director and one of the morning show guys and things like that. And his son and I were the same age, and we kind of grew up together. So when we were little, he would bring us up to this station. You know, every once in a while, I'd get to go, and I'd be like, wow, the radio. You know, we were seven, eight, nine years old. And over time, the the records that they used to get rid of, uh -huh. they used to go like throughout the vaults, you know, the uh, promotional copies and all that stuff to make room for new ones. And these 45s and albums would just pop in to my life. So my buddy would come up and we'd listen on the old um, suitcase uh, record player. Uh -huh. And, you know, so the first things I remember in, you know, secular music, because in our house, we used to listen to gospel music all the time. And so all of a sudden the Beatles and the Beach Boys start to come in and they're coming in in droves. So I'm listening to stuff you know, like rock and roll music, the Beatles cover and things and I'm, help. I'm like, what is this noise? What is this sound? And it was really something. And 
so the Beach Boys and the Beatles have always been a fascination of mine, uh, even more so the Beatles because they are the best. But I, I always thought that was a thing for him to do, my buddy. So by the time we were in high school, he's already got part-time weekend gigs and stuff on this station at 16, 17, 18 years old. And, you know, that was always his thing. So fast forward, my high school sweetheart and I had been going out about seven years. So I was like 23, 24 years old. And so I decided, well, I guess you got to get engaged. That's what you do now. And so I went and got engaged. Mm -hmm. And well, long story short, I got into radio and, and not married. <laughs> but <laughs> so I ended up just, you know, I ended up getting into it without... Um, I didn't mean to do it because it wasn't supposed to be something I was trained in or I didn't, you know, I didn't understand, you know, how to do it. But in the bars and as you're growing up, I was a concrete finisher. My family owned a contracting company. And so it just wasn't my thing. But I made friends with some of the DJs in town and they'd say, come by the station before we go out. And I'd look at these boards with all these lights and everything. How do you know what to do? You know, they're like, Dave, it's not that hard. Like, no, I could never. So when I got engaged that night, I went out to I don't want to bore you with this, but I gave her the ring and I left. Like, I, I almost said, like, what did you just do? <laughs> and so I I went to the darkest corner of this bar that I went to and just started to proceed to, you know, do what you do there. Yeah, get so there was a well-known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was getting a little schnockered in the corner. And so there are our TV news, one of our TV news anchors, was a well-known drinker over the years, but a very nice guy. I never had any conversations with him, but he, if the news was over at 1130, he was in the bar at 1133 and that's no joke. <laughs> and so he comes and he sits down right next to me. I'd never had a conversation with him. And we talked a little bit. And so I told him, I said, you know, I just got engaged, but I'm thinking about doing radio, but I'm a concrete guy. What do I put on a resume? And he said, well, he said, you seem like a well-spoken guy. Why can't you do this? And I said, I don't know. He said, just, Put on your resume, you're a concrete finisher, and say, you know, you can teach me how to run a board. I think I can do this. And I went out the next day, and um, I went to a Christian station an hour away uh -huh. on an FM, and they said, we don't have anything here. Why don't you try our AM over in Cortland, Ohio? So I drove back across to Cortland, Ohio, up north of Youngstown. And um, <laughs> this is wild. Walk in, it's a, it's a trailer. And... You remember Flo from Alice? Uh-huh. The Kiss My Grits. Kiss My Grits. <laughs> I walk in and, yeah, she was she had a bouffant red kind of hair and all this stuff and uh, smoking a cigarette and uh, big long nails and stuff. And I said, uh, I was told by the FM to come over here. And she said, uh, to see this guy. And so she said, hold on a second. And she, now here's how small the place was. She picked up the phone and she got his, you know, extension. And she said, uh, so-and-so, uh, Bob, there's a Dave Marino here to see you. And right behind the wall where I'm standing, and we're all six feet of each other. She, it's like, send him in. <laughs> like, you didn't even need to pick up the phone. You could have just said it out loud. So I go in, and I remember the guy's name was Bob Kurzmarkey. And he had the biggest ashtray I'd ever seen in my life. Probably 12 <laughs> by 12. Like a foot by a foot. And it was piled high. And and I was like, "Are we? can we smoke? You know, so, so we laughed. But he said that he was looking for a guy to help him with a Saturday morning auction program. I guess you call it and bid on things. So he said, would you be interested in that? I said, yeah. And so literally the next day after talking to that guy, he goes, come on in tomorrow. It was a Friday. He goes, come in tomorrow morning or whatever, and we'll do it. I went, really? So I got, I got in. Mm -hmm. That was it. 
so that was kind of next day I started in radio and, uh, and, and within days, in fact, he, we were sitting there getting ready to go on and he said, just watch me this week. And then next week we will bring you on. He doesn't get five seconds into the thing. And he's like, Hey, let's, and, and, you know, let's uh, welcome our new guy, super Dave. And he called me super Dave. And that ended up sticking with me my entire career in Youngstown. And, um, he, I ended up getting the auction program and all of that stuff, everything real quick and real fast. And I, I just kind of got into radio, kind of fell into it. So now it's a, it's a boring story, but it's, that, that 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 that's how it happens. Yeah, you know, I, I fell into it uh, myself. Uh, my first professional gig, I, I had a date to go see Sills and Crofts in concert, and this is in Rexburg, Idaho. And I got a telephone call from a guy that I had taken a class with that was working at one of the local radio stations in Rexburg, and he says, "Hey, Dave, how would you like or Buford at the time? Uh, how would you like to to come and?" Uh, work uh, with us at uh, KRXK. Man, I got all excited. He says, can you start tonight? Uh, yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I I sent the tickets to the girl and never went on a date with her again, but I was a professional oh DJ. <laughs> so that's cool. Of that night. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it funny? It's like, hey, can you be here tonight or tomorrow? You're like, yes. You, yeah. know, you couldn't ask for any better. Well, I, got, I, get, this, I get this silly little show. Uh-huh. And there was a lady that would come in and she'd have like, it was the first time I'd ever heard of votive candles. I still don't know what they are. I don't uh-huh. think that she, they would bid on, people would bid on stuff. And I was just so dumb. I carted up a, a carousel sound effect, like whatever it was. Uh-huh. So if you won the, if you won the bid, I'd play the carousel. Well, all of a sudden, you know, my first weeks doing it, nobody was on the phones. Then all of a sudden, as it was leading up to the show, all of a sudden, all the phone lines were lit up. And I was like, something's going on. You know, we're getting people are listening to this little small state. And so anyway, that the owner of the FM out in Mercer, Pennsylvania, I think it was WKTX was the name. Called. But he was an old man, and I had become friends with the program director out there, who ended up being my partner in years to come. And he but my partner would tell me news that he was getting from me about me. You know, he the old man did not like me at all. Uh-huh. Not like I never met him. He just didn't like. Me. So he's he's getting ready, from what I understood, to sell the station. So some guys were coming for a meeting, and so I, I'm getting firsthand, you know, from my my buddy. And the guys get there and they're like, "Who do you have on the AM? Like, what is going on over?" You know, and he's like, "Oh, you know, I'm really sorry about that." They're like, "This guy's hilarious." Again, one of these stories where, hey, it seems like it's going to go in my favor. Uh-huh. Um, well, he puts the clamp down on me and says, no more carousel. And you would have thought this was the biggest thing that ever happened. You know, like, oh, no, not the carousel. Uh-huh. And so I end up, and I knew this was when I was going to set my path of what I was going to be in radio. Because it was in no uncertain terms, do not run the carousel anymore. That's not. Well, I remember the first show after that, that a guy calls in and he wins a bid on an auction and he says hey um you know where's the carousel and now here's where i started down the wrong path (laughs) i (laughs) i said you know i'm not allowed to play it and i said it out on the air Uh in my head i'm thinking in my head i was thinking i was johnny fever that was where i my that was my mindset you had to be the kind of nuts out of touch freak and so i said it on the air i go you know i'm not allowed to play it and then I said, you know what? Screw that. 
and I played it. Well, that ended up being the death knell for me. The, the owner actually called me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went from King, like, this guy's really funny. Like, this guy's great. You got to get him on. To I, within a week or two, just being fired, he called me and said, you know, hey, Dave, you know, I don't know if you need to come in this week. And I said, well, like, next week? Because I don't think you need to come in again ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I was 25. I just started. And um, so I got fired the first time from a little station. And I cried that day. It was, I... it was a tough it was a tough day. Have you ever had that? Oh yeah, just recently. <laughs> <laughs> Back in January, I was doing some crying at sixty-three years old, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, man. I, I I cried like a little girl, and I was okay with it though because it's like I'm never okay. I'm out of radio. I'll never get back in. Um. So my buddy, that was the program director, in the in the meantime, while I was still working there. They used to ask me to come. He and his brother did a show called Network Saturday Night. But they would do like, it was a Christian station, but they would do like funny stuff, skits and things. Mm -hmm. So as we became friends, I was on the AM way far away, but I drive out there and we record this show. So I started to get into bits and parody songs and kind of, it was really like old style radio coming back again. Yeah. And I've always loved that, you know, the characters and the parody songs and all of that. So I, I learned a little bit of that and kind of got a taste for it. Um, so after I got fired, we still stayed in touch because he eventually got fired and, but he knew a guy that did like weddings and DJing stuff like that. And do you want to go and do weddings with us and things like that? So even though I was out of radio, I thought I was done. Um, I stayed with him and we became friends and then karaoke came along and this guy ended up buying a couple karaoke sets and it was traveled all around town doing shows stuff. And so I ended up DJing at this, in fact, it was the same bar that I talked to the TV news guy in years later. Uh-huh. And I was just, you know, it was a Wednesday night or something, you know, kind of dead zone. But people were coming in, they were they were packing in and all that. And um, then doing karaoke for them, too. And we were packing them in on Monday nights, like the deadest night of the week. And so he, this guy was sitting in the audience when I was just spinning records, and he Came up and he goes, you know, we, we're starting this uh, classic rock station. I remember it's called 95K Rock. And I said, okay. And he goes, I think I've been here the last couple of weeks and I think you would be, a, you would fit well there. I want you to meet the owners and the GM. I'm like, really? Cool. Okay. So I, yeah. So they just wanted me, but I called my buddy and I go, dude, we got to put a tape together. We've got to make this happen. You know, come on. So I was trying to force my way in. So anyway, we met with the folks and, um, I think we got the job only because we were laughing at our own stuff. They made us sit there and listen to the tape. And we were giggling, leaning on each other and laughing out loud. And uh, so next thing I know, I'm a part-time guy with my partner now, who is now my partner. And we're doing this kind of show we want to do in the middle of um, Sunday afternoon. And I was like, wow, okay. So we're back on the air. And it was like 100,000 watt boomer. Oh. You know, right. But it was out of, it was out of, I don't remember some city in Pennsylvania, but it, it went into the Youngstown market. And so we were kind of, you know, just goofing around on Sunday afternoons, but we started pre-taping a lot of stuff and making our own sound effects because we didn't have any. And we you know, learned how to kind of edit tape and stuff. You know, I didn't know how to do all this, but I learned, I learned quick. And he was, he was a guy, he knew more than I did, but very quickly I said, that doesn't sound right. Let me, do it. that doesn't sound, I know what I'm looking for. So I kind of ended up, taken home mm-hmm. they put us on sunday afternoon like two to six but it was right in the middle of football season and i'm like 
this is Radio Dead Zone. Nobody's going to listen. Well, within 30 days, within four shows or three shows, we are the biggest listened to thing at that station. Big salespeople are like, Dave, what is going on here? Look at you guys. Look what you're doing. Well, they stick us in the morning show. I mean, I don't think we were there for a month, month and a half. Next thing, we're, we're, we're the morning show. And so I thought, well, isn't this interesting? And we started to do some interesting stuff. And I, I really kind of got the bug at that. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, and we had talked a little bit about, you know, some of the celebrity that comes with it. I think that's a big part of stuff. Um, but I think you also have to love the thing. I think you have to love radio. And I, I don't know that that's out there today. I don't know what your experience is. Yeah. Are, you, are there people that love it? Not as much as we like did. We, no. Yeah. Because it's so much different. But you made a point when you were talking about uh, with the, with the owners that you were laughing at your own stuff. And this is one of my big contentions in radio right now uh-huh. is uh, when I was doing my show, if I didn't think it was funny, I wasn't going to do it. If it didn't entertain me, I knew it wasn't going to entertain my audience. So I'm really happy you said that because I knew I was on the right track then. But, you know, you've, you've heard these announcers, you know, they get on there and they try to, to crack these jokes and then they get into their professional radio laugh going. (laughs) You're so funny, Annie. Hey, Nancy, Nancy, you're, you're wonderful. You're so funny. (laughs) Oh, you'll make me laugh. I I know that. Yeah. And it just, it it doesn't come across. No, not at all. And it's usually top 40 people that do that a lot. That seems to be the the crew, you know, they think they're really funny and you're like, come on. But I ended up, we ended up in the classic rock area. Uh And, so the reason the reason I wanted to do it was, I said, you know, I'm not a stand-up, I'm not a whatever, but these people will let me go on the air and be nuts. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can I can go be a little bit outside. Like I couldn't do it on Top 40 Station or Country Station, uh, but this classic rock realm allowed us to be, and I mean, we, we did some stuff. Uh-huh. And like stuff I'm maybe not even proud of today. But <laughs> what I learned was, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, my parents were, if they were listening, I thanked them that they never told me. But um so what ended up happening, though, was I kind of started, I didn't understand what I was doing, but I kind of started learning the craft thing. And so we were always theater of the mind guys. Mm-hmm. See, I was a little bit different because the music was always secondary to me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to entertain. And so we'd play two songs, come in, play two songs, come in. You know that. Mm-hmm. And I always liked the two songs in between because it let us get ready for the next time. And we had stuff firing everywhere. I and mean, I was firing sound effects and cards. We had a lot. So I kind of learned... I guess just kind of haphazardly, but I started to realize here's what we want to sound like. Here's what we want to do. And a lot of it was the theater of the mind. And it was kind of just old time radio. We wanted to make you feel like you were there. We wanted to make it sound like you were in the room, you know, that kind of stuff. And what I did learn was this. If we thought it was funny enough to go on the air, which most of our stuff we thought was funny enough, we were that brash Mm -hmm. that what we would do, even if it was a, like my partner would go and call me from the other room as a character. It's like Mr. Rogers. Uh-huh. Go give me a Mr. Rogers on this news story. So he would go in the other room, blah, blah, blah. We'd run it back. But what I what I decided was this thing can't run flat. It has to we have to we have to carry this thing along. So when the guy would say something, it was already pre-taped, but we would laugh in the background and carry it. Right. And so what it did was cause it's almost like a laugh track on TV. It tells you when to laugh. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing that kind of stuff. And 
you know, we'd bring different people in for different, you know, little features we had and stuff. And we, and I, you know, carry this thing along guys, let's laugh it through. And so there was that, but again, we weren't laughing at stuff that wasn't funny. Like if someone was a dud, we're like, dude, that's terrible. Uh-huh. We'd make it, we'd make fun of each other. It's terrible. But we were ready to go. Like we, we were putting on a show, like we were doing kind of laughing. I think something like that. Uh-huh. And you never knew what was going to happen. I mean, half the time I didn't know either. And I was pretty well prepared, but you know, things could go in another direction, but we had a lot of fun. Um, but I got the first job with him. I actually got hired away within months. Wow. The big rock station hired me away, but for some reason they wouldn't let him come with me. Huh. But I was kind of feeling my oats. <clears throat> I mean, like I'm the big dog here, you know, super Dave, man, he's big time. You know? And but they wouldn't let me take him. So anyway, I'm, I remember going in the first day and I'm sitting there they got some girl in the newsroom. I don't know, you know, and I'm like, hi, how you doing? Nice to see you. And I was terrible. I was terrible. And I didn't last long, but what they had done, they hired me away from him to fire me. It didn't matter if I was good or not because they wanted to split us up. Cause we were making, we were making inroads. Real yep. That happens. And I got, yeah. And so I've, i my success has always been my demise every time. I get a leg up like, hey, man, you're going to go huge. I'm fired. It's the exact opposite. And so I haven't had a real good run with that in my career, but I get fired a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So we were, you know, I thought I was out again, and I went back and did karaoke and stuff like that. Um, And so I was probably around 94. I think I started in about 89. I got a late start, but. In 94, I think it was right around Tom Petty's Wildflowers album came out because I heard a new song. It was turned out to be You Wreck Me mm-hmm. and just driving around. So I called one of the girls from that station that fired me years, you know, years later. And I'm like, oh, man, that's, that song is so good. And she's like, Dave, there we are looking for part time people like right now. Call this guy. And I'm like, that guy fired me. He doesn't want Dave. Call him right now. I'm going to tell him you're calling. Call him. We need you. So out of that little phone call, I call back and. We swore at each other for a little while on the phone. And he said, when can you be here? And I said, when do you want me there? Right now, with a lot of expletives in the middle. Mm-hmm. So literally, I, I drove right from where I was talking to him up to the station. We talked and we made kind of a little deal. And um, you know, I was still finishing concrete and, and jumping in on morning shows and things like that. Um, and so for a year or two, but then I brought my partner over part-time also. So I got him in the building. <clears throat> and it's funny, the guy that the guy that fired me was doing afternoon drives. He's a program director and he was voice tracking you know, just on reel to reel. Or voice tracking was a real thing. And um, he ends up getting fired for like embezzlement or something. He's a really crummy guy. <laughs> and but he's it's really funny. He's really big in one of the major companies. He's a monster. So um, going back, we said, Hey, you remember the Super Dave and Dana show? Why don't we do that in the afternoon? And they had remembered it from two or three years before. And I'm like, okay. And that started the big, what I would consider my biggest show at that time. Like we just took over the city and it was big and it was large. And we got good at it. And you know, that's something that I think that, uh, that consultants have ruined in this business is we used to have radio shows uh, like you were doing and now they just say a radio show just needs to be the morning show. And the rest of the time, it's, you know, that was, this is, that was, this is, uh, re- re- yeah. reading liner cards. And I think when you find somebody that is successful uh, outside of morning drive with their show, 
is because yep. they are allowed to do some things that actually attract people to that show. Uh, I think that's what I've found over the years. Yeah, I think, though, Dave, I think there may be a – or David, I'm sorry. I don't mean to, oh, Dave, I, David. I think, that, <laughs> I think that sometimes what happens, though, is there is that group of people that, again, fancy themselves as funny. So there aren't too many people that actually, out of all those people that think they're hilarious, that actually break through. So I think the tendency is, yeah, you know what? Just shut up and play the music. Mm-hmm. All right. Don't be funny. But it's hard when you find somebody who, when people are funny, to tell them to be quiet because, you know, you could put them on anywhere. I mean, we went on in afternoons and we were doing a full blown morning show. Believe me, we we're doing the whole deal. And it went crazy in our town. You know, and I said, I know this can work. You know, I know it can work because if we're doing something entertaining or engaging or something, people will listen to this. And it, it took off. I mean, we had 16 shares. When I, by the time I got fired a couple of years later, we, had, we were at 13. Wow. We had a 13 share, 3 to 7 in the afternoon on a, on a station that barely even bled into Youngstown. Wow. You know. That's cool. And we were, we were killing it. We owned the market. And so I think if you're, I don't know. Program directors, and then you're bringing up consultants even more so. Program directors, I contend, are like teachers, you know, not not to take a shot at teachers, but those are people who couldn't make it in the field that they teach, Mm -hmm. so they teach. So the program director, a lot of times, is a failed DJ. He doesn't understand what it's like to be on the air. You know what I mean? He did a little bit of it, but then he got into the corporate side and he became a boss. And so I don't listen to program directors very well, only because my respect level is a little bit down. They're not on the air. You know, like you could be a PD and be on the air. Like, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's the best program. But, you know, when I, when I look at people that just, you know, my, my whole career literally was everybody, the listenership and the ratings were all saying, talk and be funny, entertain us. And all my bosses were always saying, shut up, shut up, shut mm-hmm. up. All right. And I'm not, I'm not, as you found out now, I'm not even really good at shutting up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I always said about a boss, you know, th- this is, this is when, when I, I talk about a boss, I always say, a boss is just a sorry SOB spelled backwards. Uh, so I, <laughs> I I know what you mean about bosses. But, you know, yeah. that you know, you brought up the part about uh, being fired every couple of years. And that's one of the things. This business tends to be very transient. You, I've worked all over the country. I want to find out where Dave Marino has applied his wares uh, besides Youngst- Youngstown, Ohio, and, uh, you know, Atlanta, Georgia. Tell tell us where you've been. Well, you know what? I've I've only been to those two. Oh, okay. And I, yeah, I jumped. You know, I got uh, to finish that story. You know, we were kind of at the top of our game, and a consultant came in and said, "Hey, move these guys uh, to mornings. They're yeah. really they're 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 that big. These guys are dominating the air. Like they're they're that good." So, long story short, they end up with the boss and the program director and the morning show guy who were friends for that we were going to put these two shows together. And I was I remember going to Bob Evans for breakfast and i'm thinking i'm going to be crowned the king of the station and the next thing it's like here morph in with these other two and i'm like i don't want to this is not what we're not no well long story again short within about three months i'm gone i was supposed Mm. to be the big guy and i end up out Mm. and that was probably march of 97 or something so i had a cousin that's an entertainer piano player and stuff he used to do like the miss miss ohio's miss pennsylvania pageants used to MC a lot of those for the miss americas like the lead up to so he was always in the entertainment. He knew people. And he asked me to come down to Atlanta. I'd never been. So it had been July 4th. He said, come on down for the holiday. Let's have fun. So I spent a week and I was leaving and he said, hey, 
you know, if you want to make a run here, Dave, we could probably make this work. You know what I mean? If you decide you want to come down, we'll make, we'll make it. So I went back to Youngstown. I drove back and I think two weeks, I got all my effects together and everything else, piled them all in a car and drove to Atlanta and said, here I go. And in the meantime, everybody was saying, Dave, you can't make it in Youngstown. How are you going to make it in Atlanta? And I said, I don't know. I don't know, but I think I know I'm like, I want to do this. My buddies, my buddy and I thought maybe Cleveland or Pittsburgh or maybe Columbus, Ohio, something like that would be big. Right. Now I'm jumping into a city that you could fit in Pittsburgh and Cleveland together right. and still have room left over population. And I was like, Oh my goodness. So I'm humping around trying to find jobs and little things here. And, uh, but I always thought this, here's what I told people. I said, you know what? If I'm going to, the idea that I kept getting fired in Youngstown, like if I'm going to fail, let's fail big. And that was my logic. If you're going to fail, fail large. Let's go do this thing and say you blew it in Atlanta, you know, not in Youngstown. You know, let's go try that. And um, so, you know, six weeks later, interviews and things like that and everything. I was just about ready to go home and I got a call from a guy who said, uh, you know, I think you need a shift. And I was like, really? So I started part-time at a station called Z93. It was a WZGC, I think. And, um, you know, $9 an hour, that kind of stuff, 1997 mm -hmm. to 98. And, uh, you know, I, it, it, the outlook didn't look good, but it was like, hey, you're on and you're on in Atlanta and you're doing something, at least you're in the game. And uh, I didn't know anything about this town, but it was a large town. It was very big. And I didn't know if I would like that or not, but it acts like a small town. Mm -hmm. and you know your neighborhoods and all that stuff you don't need to be in the big, other than traffic you know this is a really good place to live and so i kind of took to the town and it kind of invited me in i feel so um that's where that that this part of the story starts now it's a boring story i'm sorry i'm boring <laughs> no problem um, it, you're it, not boring it, me it's not man. the greatest <laughs> well i'm sure if you're listening right now you're like really dude how about telling us an entertaining story <laughs> um <laughs> So, but it's easy to commiserate about radio and I don't necessarily want to do that because like, I love it. I just wish it were different now. I wish that we could get back to, you know, privately owned stations that made their own decisions and weren't all the clusters and, you know, could have a talent pool. Mm -hmm. um, there was a guy named Mel Carmazon, big guy in radio. Most people have heard of him from CBS and then I think Sirius and all that. But back when I was working there, I was working at a CBS owned and operated station. And so our bosses would have to go every year and they used to call them the pool meetings and they were legendary where he'd bring you to the pool, get you drinks and all that stuff. And they'd just berate you like the GMs and the PDs and stuff. Just let you have. It. And one of his lines, I remember my program director coming back and I'm still a part-time guy. <clears throat> and I, you know, but I've been filling in for mornings. I've been doing everything. The station people liked me and I'm getting along fun. And he said, you know, sitting there and he's like, where's my next effing, stern where's the next stern where are you gonna bring me the next you know and i'm sitting there looking at him going you know i well kind of and i'm sitting right here what do you want to do like let's go but you know he wouldn't let me up and all that stuff would never give me a real break but and it was entertaining because my my boss's name well i don't know oh, his name was dwight douglas right and you might have heard the name you talk about consultants they he was abrams burkhart douglas okay. these are the guys that didn't Around 1980, they started the format mm -hmm. in radio, and they were the consulting crew. Well, this guy's my immediate program director in Atlanta in 97. I don't know really anything about him. I don't know much. So I'm watching the Howard Stern biography on A&E, and I'm watching it, 
he's one of the three people they keep going back to talking about Stern on his rise up. <laughs> right? He's right. one of the three guys. I'm like, Dwight? You know, and this guy was a freak of nature. He's a nice guy and everything, but he was, he was a little bit nuts, right? Like, he was crazy. He interviewed me in a full-blown Batman mask. Now, like, that guy the, can appreciate, man. Oh, I knew you'd love it. I mean, I'm sitting in the, I got to go back because I'm sitting in the, in the waiting room, you know, like, oh man, I'm terrified. And here comes Batman walking in from the outside, not from the back, from the outside door. Uh, little did I know there's a back entry, you know, you could walk around. So he makes an entrance in the full blown Batman mask, but he's got his glasses on over the mask and he's got a you know beard, whatever, gray beard. Mm -hmm. So he's like, Dave Marino. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, I'm Batman. And I said, yes, yes, you are. You know, so I'm sitting there like, what do I do? You know, so he goes, follow me. You know, so there's the, the mailboxes are right inside the door when you walk, you know, when you get through the into the inner sanctum. And he stops and he goes, sometimes Dwight asks Batman to get his, ma his, his mail for him. And I'm like, wow. Right. So we go and sit down. He never takes the mask off, but he's got the glasses on over the mask. It's the Michael Keaton mask. You know, I'm like, hey, Batman, how you doing? So he sits down and does the whole interview as Batman. And I'm like, I'm never getting this job. You know, this guy <laughs> is insane. But then he ends up being the guy on the Howard Stern a &E. You can Google it right now. Uh -huh. White Douglas. And he'll show up. And what he said was interesting. He said, I didn't know what Stern had, but he had something. I didn't know what it was. Well, when he hired me, he said, Dave, he goes, you got something. But I don't know what it is. But I, I think I'm going to put you on. He used the same quote when he hired me. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe I have a shot. Um, didn't work out. He had to be fired. And the GM had to be fired before. I even actually quit. Mm. <laughs> and the new people brought me back. They're like, the new GM called me. And he's like, Dave, I keep hearing out of here. I got to hire Dave Marino. I'm like, oh, I guess maybe. You, you know. So um, I ended up going back in and eventually getting a morning show. But, you know, it was a big town. I remember the first time I hadn't cracked the mic since March and it was October. And now they put me on seven to midnight to fill in for somebody. And it was probably the shortest break in radio. Like there's, hey, Atlanta Z93, there's Boston. I'm Dave Marino. We'll be back after this, right? With the cars or something. <laughs> Shut it off. I was so scared. I remember looking at the countdown on the CD player. And it's like, I got to talk after this song. There's no more. I can't push it off anymore. I'm going to have to talk. And I remember 12, 11, 10, 9. And I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? Don't do this. Quit. You know. And I did it, and I kind of got back into it, but scared. I mean, it was such a big place, I couldn't understand. Anyway. Yeah, Atlanta's a huge market. I mean, uh, like you said, though, yeah. they do have some traffic problems. But you told me that you also went into sports talk radio for a while. What are the – I mean, Atlanta has a mixed reputation when it comes to sports. I mean, Atlanta Braves baseball has done well, but the Atlanta Hawks basketball team – there was talk about them not even surviving for a while there because of a, a lack of, uh, of people coming out to their games. How's that market now for sports? Well, the problem is, you know, for a long time, we were one of the few cities that had all four major ones. We had the Atlanta Thrashers, too, in professional hockey. Right. The, the problem was that everybody from here is transient. So you come with your already loved set of teams. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if you... So like I came, I'm a, I've never been to Kansas city, but I love the chiefs and the Royals. And I used to love the Kings, you know, back in the day. Um, so I love the chiefs first and foremost and the Royals. So 
in my mind, well, I live in Atlanta, yes, so I guess I want to support the Falcons to a point. I'm happy if they do good, happy if the Braves do good, but it's not enough to necessarily push me to the stadium. Now, Atlanta perennially, even when they, they won 15 straight uh, East titles, you know what I mean? That's crazy. Right. Won 15 straight, but you couldn't sell out that stadium. You couldn't get that stadium packed for their playoff games and everything, mm. unless it was like the seventh inning. You'd still look at the stands fourth inning, the whole upper deck still empty and all that. So there's always been a problem with sports with transients because it's always your second favorite team, you know, or third or whatever, because the joke is kind of that like Atlanta <laughs> is not, you don't love any of it, but, but you like it. Maybe. And you can't ever find a native Atlantan. You can oh. walk around and, Y'all know, you, if you find a native Atlanta, that's like finding a unicorn. Like, wow, you were born and raised there? Wow, that's crazy. You know, there's, I don't know how many million, four million people or something, and nobody's from here. So that lends to the, you know, some of the stuff here always being your second favorite. It's never your, your true love. So. You know, several years ago, I was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I went uh, specifically to watch my, my favorite baseball team, the St. Louis Cardinals, take on the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I was sitting next to a a gentleman, and we started uh, conversing because I was noticing all these Cardinal hats and T-shirts and stuff. And uh, I, I said to him, well, you guys won the World Series two years ago. What is this with more fans from St. Louis than here? He says, "He says this is nothing. He says, you ought to come to a game when the San Francisco Giants are in town or maybe the Cubs. He says, there's nobody wearing Diamondbacks merchandise and so that's got to, I mean, that's kind of the same thing Atlanta's going through, it sounds like. It's the same, it's the same exact thing. I mean, I got to go, my, the sports station I work for actually, um, they, they set me up really good. They had me in the presidential box and they had, because the Chiefs were coming to town. And because they're in the AFC, they very rarely play each other, right. you know, too much. So the, they were coming and they got me on field passes before the game, you know, so I'm standing down there and I'm like, gosh, walking into the stadium. There were more Chiefs fans. I thought I was going to wear my Chiefs hat and my gear. I was going to get like, you know, ostracized or something or pushed back. There were more Chiefs fans walking in. You know, mm -hmm. like you said, if you go to a Hawks game and Michael Jordan was coming to town, forget it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Or if the Cubs were, the Cubs are always big everywhere. Right. And um, I would like to thank you for the 1985 World Series, though, uh, as a Royals fan. I, uh, I don't br oh, don't bring, <laughs> don't bring up Deckinger to me, new no, dude. I just got. I'm going to say two words, George Orta. <laughs> and I will say this. That guy was out by a mile. Oh, he was. Somehow. He was. Oh, <laughs> you, you got on my bad side now, Dave. You do not know. <laughs> I, yeah, I you am... can take your, you can take your I-70 Cardinals. You know where to put them. Oh, you no, know, no. you know, that, that series, that, that game I was actually watching in Missouri and I was watching uh, – no, so I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but I was watching with fans of Kansas City. And uh, they – oh, man, you're talking about rubbing it in. Uh, but, oh, but then when – I think that was game – did it go – it went to seven games. Uh, it was it was game six, and then game seven, the Cardinals just – they blew it, man. Well, they, that's when you know, Joaquin Andujar lost his mind. Do you remember on yeah. the on the – I think we went up eleven nothing like in the first inning or something. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah, the Cardinals just didn't show up to play that game. But 
he had the meltdown though. I remember yeah. he went absolutely crazy on the mound though. That was mm-hmm. nuts. So yeah, we'll forget that because it kind of has an asterisk <laughs> with the George order. With the George order call, it has kind of an. Asterisk. I um, I always say, but who has the most World Series titles? Oh well, we were lucky. And I never thought. I didn't realize this until remember the Royals got good around 2015 or so. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't realize that in all of sports they had the longest drought ever. I, it was 20, was it 29 years or something like mm-hmm. that before right. they were actually, or the, where they actually had a playoff game, mm-hmm. not just going to World Series. They never after 1985 they never made the playoffs again until 2014 or whatever. Right, like it was crazy. So, um, yeah, I think it was 29 years or something. Wow. And it was the longest drought ever in the history to not have a playoff game. And so the Royals are not really good, but I, I never thought I'd see another World Series win, but well, we got another one. So I was happy. When I was doing the morning show, I finally got the morning show at Z93, and I was like, okay, this is great. You know, it's fun. So never really had the people I wanted to do, and they were always shut up, Dave, don't do too much. So, you know, not doing much, I was pulling four shares, and, you know, but I was trying to do stuff. But, you know, anyway, in the interim there, I was meeting like a lot of people, you know, I was meeting a lot of people around town and interviewing a lot of people. And the nice thing about a big market, a lot of times is you didn't do a lot of phone interviews. People were in town for stuff. They'd come into the station, right? you know, so you'd actually meet these folks, you know, like I had Bruce Willis in the studio, you know, oh, cool. Yeah. and yeah, it was kind of nuts. And so you kind of got used to that a little bit, but somewhere around mother's day of 2002, um, I was down in Naples, Florida fishing with like a, advertiser you know like a client and they invited me down there so i'm driving back nine hours get a call from the producer kid like dave hey man it happened i'm like what i didn't even know what was happening because i was doing this thing called a uh breakfast beatles or something where they i I played like three beatles songs in a row right every morning and you know i'd do a little trivia and stuff like that and sound bites and so they he calls me and goes you're interviewing paul mccartney and i'm like no, I'm not. I, I remember I yelled at him. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> He's like, dude, this is huge. This is the biggest thing ever. I'm like, I'm not doing it. And I I had a couple expletives in there of how much I didn't want to do it. I was scared to death. Like, yeah. no, 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 no. Because I had held these guys to such esteem for so long that I said, if I meet Paul McCartney, plus I'm going to be so scared. But if he's a jerk, oh my goodness. So I didn't want to do it. But and it was a Mother's Day show of 2002, and they brought me down underneath the bowels of it, and right above us at Phillips Arena at the time, there was a Hawks play, that he was doing his sound check right above us. I'm like, oh, my God. So his his handler or whatever goes, press guy's like, hey, come on in here, help yourself to whatever you want. They had a whole buffet of everything, and uh, he'll be in in about 10. So the producer kid's like, well, how long do we have with him? And the guy, I remember the guy said, he goes, well, if he doesn't like you, five to seven minutes. He said, if he likes you, I can't tell. <laughs> so in these 10 minutes, I proceed like a magnum bottle of wine. Is that what they call a double bottle, the bigger one? Yeah. And I'm not, not much of a wine guy, but I drank half of that. And that's I drank a bottle of wine in about 10 or 12 minutes because I was just pounding. I was so scared. Right. And then the door opens. <laughs> and I'm like. Oh my god. Oh. And he's standing. Yeah, yeah, the sky opened up like, oh my gosh. You know, it's probably six or eight people, and there he is with a towel around his neck, right? Uh-huh. And he's very small. He's very small. Like remarkably small in the sense that I have to remark about how small he was. 
And I was like, wow. So he came walking across. He's like, hey, how you doing? And um, so anyway, I proceeded to do the interview. I actually stopped the interview about 20 to 25 minutes in because I thought I'm taking too much time now to baseball. I stopped it. He, he, was, he was so nice and so sweet and engaging and funny. And um, it was after September 11th was, yeah, then May. And he happened to be on the tarmac in New York when that was all going on. Oh, wow. And uh, so we talked about some of that. In fact, if you want me to send you the uh, interview, you know, you can, I'll send it to you. I would love but, to place this on the show. What can you do to get Chris a little bit more nervous? A little more nervous? I don't know. I can just sort of say, well, why are you so nervous, Chris? It's really uptight. You know, it's really uncool, man. He is very uncool. And you see, you knew it as soon as you walked in here. No, he's really very nice. And we're just kidding, folks. <laughs> you say that in everything I ever, every interview I ever hear you say. You say something and then you go, no, no, we're just kidding. It's all in good fun. Why is that? Because you get sued otherwise. <laughs> okay, so you're just kidding. I want to thank you, first of all, because what, after, what happened after September 11th, I thought you did one of the most uh, generous things that I've ever seen anybody do. And I'm not sure, is it true you were on the tarmac in New York City? Yeah, we were, you know. We were, we were scheduled to go back to England. Heather had been in New York uh, the day before to receive an award for her charity work from Red Book magazine. That had gone great, and she and 10 other women had got these awards. Um, it had gone great, and we were just due to leave on the 11th. And we were at the airport JFK at quarter to nine. And the pilot just said, sorry, there's been a terrible accident in New York. And those of you on the right-hand side of the airplane will be able to see. And we saw one of the trade towers smoking live kind of thing. And, you know, immediately, like everyone else, I think we just thought, well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where somebody's died at the controls of a plane. As, as happened, you know, a year or so before, the guy had a heart attack and his plane just kept on flying across the States. I thought it was like that. I thought, oh, God, and it's just crashing. But then pretty soon afterwards, Heather said, is, is, that, is the other one on fire? I said, no, I said, it wouldn't be because it, they look close together from here, but they're far apart. And of course it was. So this shock wave went round and the people on the plane knew and the captain got on. They said, well, they've closed the airport. And we all started to know what had happened. You know, shock ran through the country, the world, really. Um, so we just, you know, felt like a lot of other people, kind of hopeless and helpless. Uh, what can you do? So as we'd been going to go back to Europe to put together some concerts, uh, we just said, you know what, we've got to stay here, put it together here, because this is where people need the help. And we were very proud to do it. You know, it was something I'm really glad we did, because it really did help. Um, New Yorkers' spirits, and I think the rest of the country. And it helped us too, you know, we had somewhere to put our feelings and some way to show our solidarity with the American people over this atrocity, you know, this attack on freedom. Well, you've been so good to America, and I, I believe America's been so good to you over the years too. Then you write freedom. Now, obviously that's what spawns it, but what was going through your head when you're sitting down with that? Well, you know, because I knew we now had the idea of the concert coming up, and, um, so I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do on the concert? Well, I thought, okay, I'd heard that some of the radio stations that day had been playing Let It Be as a kind of spirit raiser. And I thought, okay, well, I'll do that. I know another couple of other songs I could do. But then I thought, 
Um, I really would love to have something special, even though it's very difficult to launch a new song in a, in a concert like that. I thought if I can write something really simple that people, even people who aren't very musical, can just hear that chorus and go, freedom, put their hands up and, and shout, you know. I said, if I can do that. So that's what got me the idea for it. And uh, I sat down, wrote something. Actually, Heather helped me out, um, kind of arranging it and putting it, you know, verses. She said, I think that would be good. I said, you know what, you're right. So it was a kind of co-effort. She was helping on the organize the uh, tickets for the firemen. She found out that even though we'd been told all the firefighters were going to get tickets for the concert, a couple of days before, she found out they hadn't had them, which is typical, you know, those big organization things. So she said, well, I'll tell you what. And she got on, she started, like, campaigning and got on to the bigwigs. They immediately sent her over 200 tickets. Oops, you know, keep quiet. <laughs> so she said, right, and she went down. She and I went down to... Uh, it was ladder nine. Went down and saw the guys just walked in. They said, hey, guys, have you got tickets? I said, no. One of the guys said, what, tickets for the Yankees? <laughs> I said, no, no, no. But, um, it was really good, you know. It was very sort of um, worth it. And the guys were so pleased, you know. And we just, Heather just went around saying, are you working tomorrow night? The guys said, no. Would you like some tickets? Yep. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so, you know, she was very helpful putting the whole thing together. We played, uh, I had a thing, I, I don't know what struck me, but I played Live and Let Die that next day, and I, it took on, not that it should have taken on a mean, that wasn't why you wrote the song, but yeah. boy, when I heard it again, I said, I want everybody to just listen to this in another way, and I, mm. I don't know if you'd condone that, but boy, it sure made us feel like that. Well, you know, uh, I know what you mean exactly, because when we were putting the show together, without really thinking, we, we put that after freedom. So you get the, the vibe of freedom, you know, like, hey, don't mess with us. And then you get like living that type at it, and and um, you know, I'm not a violent person, but I really think you know that was a terrible act of war, and in, in the worst possible way because you didn't you didn't even see your enemy, you know, in the old kind of wars. At least there's a guy there, he's shooting at you. You can shoot at him. You know, I, I'm a pacifist, but when you've got to defend your country, you've got to defend your country. That's your wife and your kids, you know, and that's got to happen when someone attacks you like that and say, this is the hidden enemy and it's much more difficult. So, no, I, I certainly uh, do uh, agree that you've got to answer that kind of atrocity. It just can't go unanswered. Some people, who, I got in a bit of trouble in England, you know, they sort of said, well, you know, Paul, you're a pacifist. How come, you, you know, you're saying different now? I said, well, I'll tell you what, I am a pacifist. I said, but if someone smacks me in the face, um, I might just be likely to smack him back, you know. <laughs> and um, it's the way it has to be, you know. It's a very reasonable thing, I think. You've got to defend. I don't advocate going out and just taking over the world. I think if someone comes, like Hitler, attacked Britain, what should we have done? You know, just uh, sort of lay down and go, okay, come on in. What should you guys go? Okay, you're taking out the Twin Towers, you took out the Pentagon part of. And, you know, this is, you'd, you'd start to spread anthrax. Oh, okay, we'll let you off this time. No way, an impossible situation, you know. It just doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, when you've got the Driving Rain CD that comes out. <clears throat> what, a, what a wonderful CD. Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, over the years, people say, oh, that's a good McCartney album. That's not a so good McCartney album. And, I mean, nothing ever says that's a bad, nobody ever says that's a bad McCartney album. But they'll say, that's good, that's great, that's not so good, you know. And you get through that. This is great. Oh, thank you. 
I mean, I, you know, I really like it. It's, it's nice now being on tour. But when we released it originally, we weren't on tour. We didn't have videos. We didn't have all the stuff that helps people know it's out. So um, it's actually getting a lot more attention now than it did when it was released. It got a lot of great reviews. So it's very gratifying. You know, now we're doing it. We, I think we do about four of the numbers in the show from the album. And I always love that thing. You come out on tour. And your first week, people don't quite know what it is that you're doing. But after a while, they've seen the video on MTV or they've heard it on radio. And the uh, attention starts to like, pick up. So they start to like those songs as much as the hits. Well, they become the hits at that mo at that point. I just saw Lonely Road for the first time last week. Your video, oh, yeah. and I got it. The, the first thing that stuck out in my mind was well, it was excellently shot. Yeah. But there are some pretty girls in there. You just like the women. <laughs> I know that. You just like the women. We made that for people like you. <laughs> I suck into the easy part. I'm the easy guy, right? Yeah, well, you and a lot of other guys. I mean, well, how hip can you look in this thing? They've got you dressed all hip. You might as well be back in the in the sixties. You look good. That's me, man. You know, hey. Well, the director just came up with the idea, you know, actually a few of us came up with the idea. And um, it was actually originally all started with our publicity guy, Jeff, who said, you know, why don't you make a kind of video like that? <laughs> kind of a Madonna-like video is really what it's like, isn't it? I don't want to compare it to anything, but that's, it's, it's kind of shot in a weird way. Well, you know, it's nice. The nice thing about it is if you're going to do videos, you've got to do something that's going to get shown. There's no point doing some really sort of interesting artsy thing and MTV sort of said well you know it's not us you want to get it shown worldwide really you know in every gym you know yeah but don't you think that you could just they could just sit around watching you write for like about 10 hours and people would watch that I mean the Osbournes would have nothing if they did the McCartney's right <laughs> <laughs> well you know the, the thing is you you think um, they'd show it but the truth of the thing the truth of the matter is um, things like MTV particularly um, they have a kind of style. And if your video doesn't fit in that style, it becomes more difficult for them to play it. They kind of say, oh, it just doesn't fit with us. Like radio formatting and stuff, you know. So it was something we thought about this time. And we knew we were coming out on tour. We we're going on the road, the lonely road. We knew we were having the red car and all the photos. So we tied it all in. It just made it, you know, a little more sort of in your face. Do you love going on the road or do you kind of hate it or do you love it for a little while and then just kind of say I wish this was over I love it yeah I must say I think uh, I wouldn't love it if we were out like endlessly you know just all year but um, the cool thing is we're out for kind of quite a limited period in fact now we're getting a bit desperate because like the gigs are running out <laughs> and all the people on the tour are going oh, I know you know it's like there's no there's not an, enough left in front but um, it's been a, such a great tour of America that, you know, we now we'll have a little bit of summer. But um, to answer your question, I really have loved it. And I think everyone on the tour, there's such a great atmosphere that people, you're walking down the corridors here, you'll find, you know, people getting on great with each other and really enjoying it. And the band is so cool. You know, it's a really good band. For me, it's just a pleasure to get up and play with them. Sound checks are a pleasure. I mean, just warming up before the thing, we goof around and we have a lot of fun on this tour. And um, a lot of nice little things happen. I mean, Heather's sister, for instance, um, we, we had some, we have a thing with balloons before the show and we normally get people to like volunteer for that. You know, they, they don't have to be real great dancers. A lot of the other people in the pre-show have to be good dancers. But um, so her sister 
was doing this. And there's a great fun camaraderie comes out of it. They're like all getting nervous, all the amateurs, you know, like our accountant, Heather's sister, one of the other accounting ladies, you know, and they're, they're all like, oh, but they're very professional. You know, they want to be rehearsed. They go through this whole thing, man. They're more nervous than we were. They're saying, I don't know how you go on and do a whole concert. You know, they had three minutes walk through the audience with some balloons and they were terrified out their wits. And in fact, I, I actually am going to put him on the spot. This is Jeff, our publicist, because I don't think he's got the nerve to do it. I think and this is a challenge. This is a challenge. Make him do it tonight. Make him do it in here in Atlanta. Will you do it, Jeff? Have to build up to it. I think. Yeah. In Florida, he's going to do it in Florida. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jeff. That does us no good. That's a far cry from Wings. Just hitting the road in the in the vans, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when we started off with Wings, um, it was all post Beatles, and we either were going to do the whole thing really big and just sort of say, okay, we're wings, you know, I just get uh, musicians who are kind of really famous and just go out, just stay up at that sort of big Beatle level. Or we decided, what we decided to do is kind of just be a young band again, just be like a, a band that had to work it all out, had to get to know each other, had to learn how to play together instead of just uh, a super group. So that was what we did. We just uh, we put together a kind of goofy little group and then worked at it. And we, those first gigs were pretty goofy. Well, I have, I have, we have a controversy going on down here because, you know, I do a thing called Breakfast Beatles. You know about that every morning. Uh, yeah, of course I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we do that every morning at 7.30, and I say, you know, Paul, I say, I, I'm Dave Marino, the fifth Beatle, and, you know, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah whatever. And I said, they said, how do you know that? And I said, well, because Paul called and told me I'm the fifth Beatle. So I, just for everybody here in Atlanta, I might, I'm, you know, you can say whatever you want, yeah. but you, I, I'll see how you answer. Yeah, well, it's a lie. <laughs> and and I'm sorry to I'm sorry to put you down, man. But you, me, and all the people listening know that's a lie. But listen, you know, just for now, why don't we change this? And you can probably edit the tape. You know that that's true, Dave. That sure is true. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for clearing that up for yeah, us, so ladies good. and gentlemen. Paul McCartney. All right, man. Thank Take you. It easy. Thank hey, you, Atlanta. Good to be here. Can I ask you to read one thing for us? It's a little liner sure, for the yeah. breakfast beetle. And you don't have to say the fifth beetle. <laughs> no, no, man. That's good. You don't have to. But no, it's but it's there. fun. I mean, it's you can. What you do with that? <laughs> I'll edit it up. <laughs> do with it. Do with it. And then admit. Say, so, you know. Oh, okay. Oh, I, I know. know. It was, I got, here's the real full. Give me a good one of those. Okay, you are. Yeah, yeah, you are. What? We're gonna run the real one. So give you the real one. Yeah. No, just give me the yeah, yeah. That you're right, Dave. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right, Dave. That's true. You are. And you edit that yeah, one, right, right. and then it's a bust. You it. bust him or something. Yeah, I say, oh, no, bust he didn't him say that. Dave, Dave. Come on, man, you've got to own up. Got to own up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi, this is Paul McCartney, and you're listening to Dave Marino, the fifth Beatle on Breakfast Beatles on Atlanta's Classic Rock. Did I say that? The fifth Beatle? Wait a minute, Dave. Come on. I told you. All right, so that's, there's your other edit. I'll just do this without the fifth Beatle, okay? okay? Hi, this is Paul McCartney, and you're listening to Dave Marino on Breakfast Beatles on Atlanta's Classic Rock, 793. Z93. Z93, I said. No, I'm sorry. No, that looked like a seven. I, I screwed it up. Okay. On Breakfast Beatles on Atlanta's Classic Rock, Z93. You are the sweetest man there was. Reflection. Reflection. Yeah, he was so, but he was so sweet, Dave, and so nice, and he made it all worthwhile. Because had he been mean or not nice, I mean, it would have ruined the dream. 
because I love these guys since I was a kid. You know? mm-hmm. And um, so I, I actually went. It was probably the worst thing I said to my GM, but I said, you know, the next day I'm like, hey, you can fire me now. Because I said, what am I going to do for my next trick? I just hit the pinnacle. I did it. Wow. You know, I hit the mountaintop. And well, within six months, I was fine. <laughs> so... <laughs> But Dave, that yeah, got that kind of morphed into something else I wanted to talk to you about because now you have this program that's called the Daily Beetle Break, and I remember when you first started sending out information because uh, I think I was probably the first station that that added on the Daily Beetle Break to uh, my lineup at Cool One Hundred Three Nine, and I just Dave, thought it was a are, terrific idea. You are the first. The no, first. you are the first. You are the best. You are truly my hero. And I'm telling you, like, if you don't know David Denton, you should know him. Because oh. I'm going to tell you this too, Dave, your voice, you should be on the radio until you don't want to be. You've got one of the great voices, one of the great deliveries. And I'm, I'm not saying it to, to build you up too much, but you're that good. And you're such a sweet guy. And you actually made the Daily Beetle Break possible because I was, because I'm a terrible, you know, I'm an on-air guy. I'm not a businessman, right. you know, so trying to sell things and stuff. I don't know how to do all that. And I'm not really good at it, but I remember get, I got a call. I was in Ohio visiting my family for a family reunion. You're like, I was about ready to quit it. Cause I said, you know, I've sent out emails. I've tried to make some calls that, you know, it's not going to work. And I was with a buddy of mine and I'm like, Oh my gosh, my eyes got real big. He's like, what? I said, I got a beetle break at Logan, Utah. I was like, Oh my gosh. I was, Dave, you would have thought I was like a little child. I was so excited. So before we go any further, I just want to let everybody know, Dave Denton has a, Huge place in my heart, and um, whatever you want ever in this world, Dave, I will do it for you. Because you, you really made what I do now possible. Uh, that that just means the world to me, Dave. So let's talk about the inspiration for that daily beetle break and how it came to. Because I've talked to you before about this when I had you on the radio with me here in, in Logan, talking about how this came to be and and uh, what what made you start thinking about. You know, the Beatles are huge, and people want to know when they can find the Beatles, right? Right, because they transcend generation. And I think, I remember hearing Paul McCartney years ago in the 90s or something. I think it was when Oasis, that band, came out somewhere uh-huh. time around there. They were, you know, every band that came out from the knack to everybody was supposed to be the next Beatles. And, it, and he, he was in an interview, and he said, we've been waiting for the next Beatles, you know, and it just hasn't happened. And it won't. No, it's never going to happen. No. And so when people ask me, like, what's your favorite band? I say, well, you know, like after you mean after the Beatles, because they're in their own area. Mm-hmm. And if if your if your favorite band is not the Beatles by default, you don't know music. That's what I'll say. You uh-huh. shouldn't. You should never talk about music with it. I mean, you could listen to it, just don't talk to anybody about it or don't have an opinion. Don't have an opinion about it because you don't know what you're talking about. But the, you know, like they should have a different category with the Beatles because, like, if you look at the Bible in bookstores, the Bible. They had to take it off the best-selling list because it's always the best-selling book. So they have their own place. Now, I'm not comparing the Beatles. Again, I'm not going to do a John Lennon. Either. But the issue was the Bible is never on a, a list because nobody would ever get the number one spot. So the same way with the Beatles in a much smaller, different way, they have their own category in music. And then everybody else comes out. And there's a substantial drop-off between them and the next band. Right. Um, so after I got fired from this morning show in Atlanta, um, I, you know, weaseled around for a couple of years and looking for something. And I knew some guys at a sports talk station. They were like, hey, Dave, we need an imaging guy, you know, commercial production and imaging both. And I was like, oh, I'm not really that good. I mean, I knew how to edit a lot of stuff and do commercials, but 
you know, with the advent of all the, the digital stuff, I really didn't want to make that transition to. So I got hired kind of for creativity because they knew I was kind of a, you know, I don't know what you call it, like a, a little bit of a lunatic. So they like, he might be able to make this stuff funny or entertaining or image. So in the process, when I get hired at the sports talk station, well, AM sports talk, and I was sitting right next to the guy who did Star 94's imaging. His name is Paul Barr. And he was just the imaging guy. That's how good he was. They had just an imaging guy and just a commercial production. And he was really good. And he knew what he was doing. I didn't know it. Well, we became friends and he helped me get into the imaging side of it. Taught me, he said, Dave, use, use Pro Tools. Learn Pro Tools right now. I'm like, I can't even look at it. I don't know what I'm looking at. Dave, just shut up. I'll tell you. Come on, just get it. And uh, then he ends up setting me up with all this. Uh, now, let's tell people that might not know what Pro Tools is. It's, it's an audio software, oh. right? Yeah, I guess it's a DAW. Now, I don't know what a DAW is, but it's apparently a DAW. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like um, it's like Adobe Audition, uh, whatever they call that now. Yeah. I uh, used to be cool at it. Um, and some people try to think of some of the different ones that are out there where you can kind of mix and, you know, do your editing. Right. And Pro Tools, I contend, is the, is the, is the best to do this at. If you can learn that, do it. The only problem is it gets expensive after a while with all the plugins and things like that. It, it can get expensive. But he taught me all this stuff. And in the process, he and his buddies, because they were all imaging guys from around the country, they had like a little group. And they started this thing before anybody really did. They were one of the first guys out of the gate to do imaging services. And if you work at a radio station, you probably trade one out for music beds and sound effects and things like that. And they have a one called Short Bus Radio. So they, they're still going all over the world. So in the process, he's telling me like, hey, this is building up right now. And, you know, eventually I'm going to leave here and just do that. And I was like, really? Off of that? Really going to be able to do that? Well, that got me to thinking, what can I do to get out of here and do something on my own? And the only thing I could think of was, I know the Beatles. Well, let's just do a Beatles show. Well, you know, why can't we just talk about the Beatles every day and put sound clips and all that? You know, being, I don't know what you call it, naive. Like, mm -hmm. why can't I do that? Mm -hmm. So the idea was, you know, the idea was, why don't you do this and, and create your own path like they're doing. So that's how I got into it. I was watching a buddy of mine kind of take an idea with his friends that actually got him out of the, out of day-to-day -day work in the thing because they just, they took off on their own. And I always admired them for that. Um, and they made a pretty big deal out of this short bus. They really, they're, they're really something. I actually do, it's funny. I actually do work for them now. Uh, they'll call me and go, hey, I need some sweepers for this. and that. So, um, But that's what got me kind of, in fact, I called my company number nine productions because I, I always, I was like, what do you call a company? But number you know, nine. the number nine revolution nine and wow. all of that craziness. Um, and it was funny because John Lennon had always said number nine was his, that, that, that number had followed him around. But I wore nine, even when I was growing up, like in all the sports I played and things like that, because my dad told me how great Ted Williams was, mm -hmm. you know? So I was like, oh, I'll wear nine then. Ted Williams, the greatest hitter of all time. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm number nine. Then Craig Nettles, I think. I, I don't like the Yankees, but like Craig Nettles for some reason. So mm -hmm. number nine was an easy pick. And I thought, well, now what do you do with this? So I put together an open. Um, and I was like playing it for people. They're like, dude, that is, that's something. You've heard the opening to it. Yeah. You know, just, it was kind of a, I don't know, a big to-do, I guess. But, um, so I thought, well, why can't I do this? And why can't we, why can't we promote the Beatles? Because, you know, some might say, that the Beatles are passe now, you know, it's like, ah, nobody cares about the Beatles. Anymore. I'm like, that's bunk. 
you know, that's craziness. Um, like Sirius XM. I mean, they, they had to start the Beatles channel a couple of years. Right. You know, because they never go out of style. And so I don't know what your thoughts. I mean, are you a fan of the Beatles or are they kind of just another group? To, no, I, I am. I am a fan of the Beatles. And I told you before we started uh, recording, I'm going to just go ahead and say it again. I had a consultant come to the radio station uh, here in Logan, and he told me to my face, and I'm running a classic hits mixed with, you know, more 60s oldies, that the Beatles and the Beach Boys were irrelevant. And I laughed in his face. And then I, the next time he came back, I had proof because, I mean, the Beatles had just broken records right and left over the the, the six months. And they, they were the leading downloads on on uh, Spotify and all these different things. And I mean, I had, I was loaded for bear when I came to him and the man looked me in the face and said, I never said the Beatles were irrelevant. This is a (laughs) bold faced lie. Yes. Now I will tell you this, Dave, when I was a kid, I wasn't a huge Beatles fan because I was more into classic R and B Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, Gladys Nine the Pips, mm-hmm. The Temptations. That mm-hmm. was my music growing up. I mean, I love that music, but I've grown to appreciate what the Beatles did from being a teeny bopper type music, you know, twist and shout and all that. And as they progressed as musicians, I don't know if I've ever heard musicians progress as much as they did over the years to becoming these wonderful musicians, songwriters that could tell a story inside a song with the music better than the Beatles. They, they were incredible, especially towards the yeah, end I, of their career. Yeah. And I think what ends up happening was, you know, you, these guys and how quick they did it too. Yeah. You know, like 64 um, is, you know, the Ed Sullivan show, February of 64. I think by 65, if I'm getting it right, they're already releasing like rubber soul. Right. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, drive my car and stuff. But the issue is, but it's always tough with them because there was British releases and then there was American releases and I don't want to get it. But the, the thing was that like rubber soul might've been the first duly released, you know, just to America. And, but I, I, I mean, I don't quote me on that. Anyway, they, if you think about it though, I was just listening to Ringo on the Beatles channel today, actually in between songs, they were talking and he said, when Brian Epstein, I call him Epstein, some call him Epstein. When he came along, he said, Hey, no more drinking and smoking on stage. He said, I want you guys to dress together. I want you to look a certain way. So he kind of pushed them in that mold. And it, it served them very well to be taken seriously and all of that. And that kind of set the path, you know, paths for a lot of other bands after that. But the big key I've always contended is George Martin. And George March Martin's musicianship, his understanding of music, and he was doing the comedy stuff at EMI, Parlophone when he gets the call but he understood music and so when you look at the his 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 producing i think without without him i don't know they they might have just been jerry and the pacemakers Mm -hmm. you know but that that thing he brought there it made such a difference but it also you know they learned off of him they learned how to play instruments that they didn't know they learned a lot of stuff and so his guidance i think they had they had some fortunate things happen to them but it's hard to argue with their talent. Right. You know, these guys, they could write a song. And, you know, when you, when you hear like she was just 17, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. right? Like I saw her standing there. That may be 
if you're if you anybody afterwards youtube it or whatever listen to the beginning of that song it may be one of the great rock songs of all time mm -hmm. it just rocks it and does. it's a great song and you know some of this stuff gets lost because they're like well this is the bubblegum era and this is the whatever and i'm like you know p.s i love you stands up you know like it's a pretty song uh, you know and then you get into the michelle michelle's and the you know but they progress so fast to your point you know mm -hmm. that it was, it was kind of mind-boggling and then but you get into a song like A Day in the Life. I mean, I love A Day in the oh. Life. I just, that to me, musician-wise, is one of their better songs, just music-wise. I love it. Oh, it's, re well, it's ridiculous. And that, that, that last note, I think, goes on for like 62 seconds. Or right, something. yeah. That, that last, and I, I forget, they had like seven pianos on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just all hitting an E chord. And some of them were a little out of tune from another. They didn't yeah. tune them or anything. So they had seven of them, and they were all hitting this E. Just boom, sounds awesome, though, yeah. And that album, from what I understand, I don't have the original copy of it, but from what I understand, that album never ends. And the idea was, if you let it go past the the piano chord at the end, you get into this weird thing where it goes, never could see any other way, never could see any other way, never could see it. And what was happening was, it would hit the groove at the end of the thing with this little music thing. But when it hit the end of the groove, it would kick back oh. and start it all over again. They kick back and go, never could see any other, never could see any other. Oh, so the, awesome. in essence, the album never ended. Uh -huh. It never ended. And nobody had ever done something like that. So I'm, anyway, that's enough of that. But it was, yeah, they were just doing stuff. But I will say this. I've always contended, if I had everything, if I had the best studios and the best players and the best, you know, producers and best whatever, if you don't come up with something good, then you're not really good at this. You know, they could call an oboe player at four in the morning you know, from the Philharmonic, and they'd show up, you know. And if you have that, it's a, you better put out some good music. Right. You know, otherwise, no. But again, are they the greatest songwriting duo of all time? Yes, they have to. Mm -hmm. And I'll go one step further. I'm, I've become like a, it's funny, when you really start to listen to a lot of this stuff, and years ago when I started, I was just listening to interview after interview, trying to find things, them talking about certain songs. And what I found out was, that when people say, do you like Paul McCartney or do you like John Lennon? And somebody will say to me, well, I'm a, I'm a Lennon guy. I'm like, you shouldn't be. Huh. Like, what are you talking And I came up with this line, and people have argued with me, but I, John Lennon, I said, Lennon is specific and McCartney is prolific. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea being, I think John Lennon ran out of ideas somewhere around 1968. If you listen to their music, I think he really kind of ran out. Mm -hmm. But McCartney was kicking in, you know what I mean? And then McCartney, you know, leaves there and ends up doing wings for another. And the wings are almost as big as a beetle. Mm -hmm. So his catalog is much bigger and much more grandiose. McCartney is the greatest composer of all time. I mean, I'm talking Bach, Beethoven, all of it. And his body of work is extensive and it's huge. And Lennon, I think that's where some of the jealousy came from. Where's he? He just couldn't keep up, you know, and Paul was very experiment, you know, experimental and stuff. And he wasn't always just crying all the time. <laughs> mm. But I found John Lennon when I listen, when you listen to the interviews of these people, I, I wonder what would have happened if Lennon had lived. But when you, when you listen to the interview, listen to the, the Jan Wenner interview from Rolling Stone, John Lennon, he is a mean person. He's not nice. You know, mm. he's talking about love and all of this stuff. He's one of the meanest people. Just hmm. very cynical and, and sarcastic and mean. And I, the more I listened to him, the less I kind of cared for that. Mm -hmm. You know, 
it's like he was always, but he was really into his own head and, you know, he was crying all the time. Pretty miserable guy for what reason, I don't know. Um, so that's my take on that. I think McCartney, and I'll, and I'll be quiet, I didn't mean to go off on that, Jack. <laughs> but, you know, for <laughs> me, I mean, I, I appreciate Paul. I appreciate uh, John Lennon. I, you know, I'm more of a Paul guy than Lennon. But my favorite Beatle, as far as his solo work, is actually Ringo Starr. I think because it's more entertaining. I mean, he's just an entertainer, you know. That's what Ringo Starr does. He's not a great singer, but what he does, he does very well. He's very fun. I mean, he's, he's he, you know, listening to Ringo, it's hard to be sad when Ringo sings, you know. It's fun. Yeah. Um, so he, he, he was a great, he was a great addition. I think when they picked him up and got rid of uh, Pete Best, Pete Best and Stu Sutcliffe. I mean, Stu Sutcliffe, they were both good-looking guys. And a lot of people came to the show to see Pete Best because the girls all loved him. He was so good-looking. Then you pick up Ringo. But Ringo, from what they say, was just the best drummer that was out there. He was well-known. He was playing for Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. and They thought he was a star. They thought he was really big. And they, they still say that he, is, he keeps time better than anybody ever. That's an interesting thing to hear about somebody that he, mm-hmm. you know, he stays on beat better than anybody. He's like a walking metronome. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like, who was the, who was the first, uh, who's the last Beatle to have a number one single after they broke up? You know, it's a good question. Good mm-hmm. trivia. So answer your trivia question. I can't remember. Was okay, it Ringo? You want to take, take a guess? You could take a guess. The last Beatle to have a solo number one. Uh, I would say, I would say George Harrison. Yep. It's actually ring. Uh, it's actually John Lennon. Oh, really? With woman? And it, it, no, no. It took until whatever gets you through the night. Oh, okay. John playing on that. Okay. And, um, in fact, there's a, there, John Lennon went and did a, a new year's Eve show with Elton John. And the, the, the bet was that when they, when they got finished with that song, he said, you've got your number one. John Lennon said, no, I don't. He said, I'll bet you. And he said, I'll bet you that you play at my, one of my concerts if, you know, it goes to number one. Well, sure enough, it went to number one. Mm. And you can see Lennon playing with Elton John to fulfill that bet. Mm. Because, uh, you know, but he's the last one to get it. You would not think that. You would think George or Ringo, right? Right. I um, would. I really would. And, it, yeah, and it wasn't. So, again, I'm, it's just trivia off the top of my head. But go ahead because I don't, uh, I don't. I could probably talk about this for a long time. So I, I know you could, <laughs> but you know, the, the, you know, when you talked about, you know, the, with uh, Elton John and you watch and you can see uh, John, uh, John Lennon playing, uh, I keep on going. I tell people a lot of times about John Lennon's uh, all we are saying is give peace a chance. And if you watch the video of that, you see Tommy Smothers playing the guitar and, oh yeah, yeah. And I had the opportunity is. to actually interview Tommy Smothers one time, and no, I talked. No way. Yeah, I did. I'm going to send that to you because I want you to oh, hear. Oh, I want to hear that. I want. I want yeah. you to hear the entire because he talks about the Lost Weekend, and he talks about yeah. playing on Give Peace a Chance. Matter of fact, I mean, this is my show, so I'm going to put in the part where Tom Len- uh, Tom <laughs> Tommy Smothers is talking about playing with John Lennon. I'm going to put that right here because this is my podcast, and I'm going to put it in right here. But. I will. I'll send you. Yeah. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. David Denton interviewing Tommy Smothers in three, two, one. Mark. 
Now, uh, you also were, were good friends with the late John Lennon, and you were did, did you also perform on Give Peace a Chance, too? Yes, play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny, Dave, because it was I think it was in 1970, and uh, the bed for Peace in, in, in Montreal, and they asked me if I'd like to come up there because was, I was kind of controversial, too, in the anti-war position. So I went up there, and they handed me a guitar, and, and he had these big cue cards. Found, uh, All we are saying is... And I was playing away, and, and about midway through this, he stopped the song. He said, Tom. I said, I said what, John? He said, Tom, I don't like what you're playing on the guitar. Play. And I was playing. I was showing him my, my passing chords. I was playing up the neck. He said, Tom play exactly what I'm playing. I want the, the, the two cards, the guitars doubled, double exactly, and there were just like three chords on it. I just, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my come up. But, and, um, but I knew, uh, ran into him on several occasions, and Harry Nielsen, I don't know if you know his music, yeah, he's right. a wonderful singer. Oh, great. And, uh, and Harry was a great friend of John Lennon's, and we'd pal around a little bit, but they were just on a... And didn't they, they get were, in trouble one time because uh, they were harassing <laughs> you? Well... Harry Nielsen came to see me somewhere in the, in the 70s, uh, mid-70s, and I was working on a solo. I was working on material, comedy material. My brother was working on some music. So he came out to Washington, D.C. to see me. And it was the first time I performed in quite a while. And I did my act. It was supposed to be uh, 45 minutes to an hour. And I was finished in 25 minutes. <laughs> my timing was... And I said, oh, well, is there any questions? And then it turned into a just a hollering uh, thing. And so, anyway, jump ahead two more months, I'm, I'm, we're opening at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, and everybody's there, Paul Newman, the stars, it's our first show in a long time. So Harry brings John Lennon there, and he says, uh, he says to John, he says, you know, Tom runs out of material, so he likes to be heckled. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a most, it turned into just about a riot. And I got flowers the next day and stuff, but it, it turned on your violence. <laughs> but he was trying to help me, but they were so they were so boozed up on on, on brandy and all some other stuff. I don't know, but uh, that was he was helping. Me. And I'll I'll tell you this: you talked about when you met Paul McCartney and how you were so nervous. When my friend oh. from Laughlin, Nevada called me and says, hey, do you want to talk to Tommy Smothers? Because they were friends. I freaked <laughs> out. I freaked out because I was such a fan of the Smothers Brothers TV show and their comedy albums. And it was one oh. of the highlights of my career. I loved it. I just loved it, man. Fantastic. Like, I'm not a, um, like, I'm not a counter, I'm not a counterculture guy, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, but those guys, I mean, they were funny. When they were being funny, they were funny. Oh, they were. And. They were, yeah, they were really good. And, you know, another guy on a kind of a little same time frame, another guy, one of the, my favorite guy I ever got to interview and actually meet, I met him a couple times, was Roger McGuinn from The Birds. Oh, wow. And I, it was really something because I love that sound. See, I, secondarily, I'm a Tom Petty fan. Mm -hmm. And there's that, something about that 12 string Rickenbacker guitar that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Like it just makes me like a lunatic. So, you know, if you like Tom Petty, you better like the birds, right? Or you don't know what you're talking about, that kind of thing, too. So when, it's funny. I'll, I'll be fast. But first, one of my first things I did here in Atlanta, um, one of the girls I worked with had to go to a concert at Chastain Park, probably 1998. 
and it's kind of an outdoor, outdoor amphitheater. And I'm 4,500. And she, I think the guess who was playing that night. I was like, wow, that's really awesome. So, yeah. Somebody like that. So, but Roger McGuinn is supposed to open up. I'm like, oh my gosh, Roger McGuinn's going to be here. And I'm like the only guy that cared, you know, <laughs> in the whole place. Right. So I'm standing backstage because she had to do the stage announcements and all that. And I'm brand new to Atlanta. So I'm standing around backstage, just milling around with a bunch of people. I turn around and I'm telling you, with an arm's length, like I reach out and poke, turn around, Roger McGuinn's stage. And I'm like, and I did what everybody does that you shouldn't do. I, I became fanboy and I went, you're Roger McGuinn. He's like, yeah. <laughs> but nobody knew who he was, you uh -huh. know, like nobody back there. And I was like, oh my gosh, you don't understand, you know, blah, blah, blah. I started talking to him. And it was right around the time when uh, David Crosby found out he had a son. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, sure do. Yeah. His son, his son was, yeah, they ended up doing an album together and all that. So I ended up running into Roger McGuinn. And, um, Fast forward a couple of years later, probably about four or five years later, he was back in town doing something. So I had him on again on the phone, but I was going to go out and do the stage announcements again. He's playing some outdoors, Piedmont Park. And so we're, I get up on stage and he's sitting down with his guitar and I'm standing next to him. And I said, you know, you hear about Lennon and McCartney and you hear about, you know, Jagger and Richards and you hear about the, all this other stuff. And I said, but I want to tell you all right now, this is the voice of a generation. And his face, <laughs> he looked up at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like his face, eyes were the quizzical look like, what? And I'm like, I'm like, this is it right here. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger McGuinn, this is him, you know, because I love that sound. Oh, you know? yeah. And you talk. Yeah. And I, I did have after that show it was funny. Couldn't find his guitars. So we're all on a search trying to find his guitars all through this. Anyway, we find the guitar. So he says, hey, do you want to come back to the hotel, you know, bar or whatever? Because he and his wife were traveling. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. And I said, yeah, I'll meet you there, right? So I had a girl that I knew with me at the show. And she's like, well, Dave, we'll take pictures and everything. I'm like, awesome. So we go back to the hotel. We're taking pictures, you know, having a nice time. He's a sweet guy, really. And, you know, get done with all that. And I'm like, a fantastic. Well, this is, I don't know, maybe 2001, 2000. She, she calls me the next day, and I'm, like, so excited about these pictures. It literally was, Dave, I didn't have any film. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, please, no, oh, no, no. Like, you're lying to me. And, yeah, and it's lost the time, you know. Uh... And, and some of those some of those guys, you know, and, you you know, I don't want to say you've been around a lot longer than I have, but you have been. You've been doing this a lot longer. Mm -hmm. So, you know what sometimes if you get like the Tommy Smothers, if you get to meet somebody that you looked up to or that you, you know, appreciate it, it's really something, you know, like there's a certain celebrity that comes with being on the radio, but even the person on the radio for years, when you meet these other people, it's like a step up or something. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. And, yeah. So I don't know what to make of that other than, you know, I don't remember like a lot of the stuff I've done, like a lot of it's lost to time now, but I will say that radio in a general sense, it can't stop, you know, like I think it shouldn't be like a preservation society. We should just make it what it was. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I changed the subject. Oh, no, not at all. I was going to tell you one it's, quick it's, story because you talked about yeah. introducing uh, Chris Hillman. Uh, and I, I was oh. on stage, I was getting ready to introduce Vince Gill at a concert at a county fair in, in Montgomery City, Missouri. 
And, uh, you know, Vince is one of the great guitar players of all time, no matter why genre oh, yeah. out there. And I'm standing oh, yeah. there, and uh, I had talked to Vince a little bit. He was standing right next to me, and we were just conversing. And and this was before he, he married Amy, because I had, I had met his wife, who was a member of the Sweethearts of the Rodeo. So I was talking to him about his wife. Was uh, he a sweet? Was he a sweet guy? Oh, like one he of the, oh he was so so incredible. Uh, actually, yeah. uh, at that concert, we had a gentleman come on who was a a state trooper and sang the national anthem. And I knew Phil really well. Phil Ahern was his name. Beautiful voice, great singing voice. And he sang the national anthem. And Vince Gill says to me, who is that guy? And he said, go find him after the show. I want to talk to him. I want to sing with him. So they were backstage singing together. That's how cool he was. But right before the concert started and the, his warm-up band is out there playing stuff and and I was getting ready to go out and do my uh, my little introduction. Vince Gill taps me on the shoulder and says, Dave, look at this guy over there. And it was a guitar player. I said, okay. He says, you know the song, Oh Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison? And I went, yeah. He says, that's the guy that came up with the guitar riff. And I freaked out. And Vince looked at me and says, I knew you were a music guy. He says that I look out on the stage every once in a while and I do the same thing. That's how much of a fan Vince, Vince Gill is of great oh, classic I, music. I was freaking well, out. That I'll was tell you so what, awesome. I, I may be one of the few guys that you'll know that actually could pick Chris Holman out of a lineup. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. he's, like he is, that guy was such a player. You know what I mean? That's it's how he got into the band. Like this guy played, he played everything, right? you know, he also, I think he, he ended up covering because I'm a Tom Petty fan secondarily, you know, and um, he actually, when, when Petty died and stuff, they, even before that, they were covering some Tom Petty songs oh, know, wow. in his band and stuff. Yeah. And um, so he, I think he might've done the song wildflowers by Tom Petty. Like he did that, but um, so, yeah, but I mean, when you talk about the birds, I don't want to get off on a jack. Oh, no mine. My goodness, whatever that jingle jangly sound is, I mean, it carried me right into Tom Petty. It carried me into everything. Um, and the Beatles did a lot of that with a 12 string, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Roger McGuinn gave gave uh, George Harrison one of his first 12 strings, you know, Rickenbach. Oh, I remember so, that. I remember that story. Yeah. I think I heard yeah, it on so, the I Daily mean, Beatle break, man. <laughs> I didn't it, know. It might have been. Yeah. Might... <laughs> There's a good chance. You know, the, the Beatle break, it was funny because. Um, you know, when I started out, I was playing like the whole song and stuff. I was really trying to get in depth, you know, with all the stuff. And um, then as years went by, I thought, why don't you just cut it down to like a snippet? You know what I mean? Play 15, 20 seconds of the song and then, you know, drive people to maybe the website or whatever you're trying to you know, mm-hmm. do. And so plus in today's world, like we were talking about with radio, it may make it more palatable for everybody, too, because the program director doesn't have to give up four or five, six minutes. Right. You know. They just give up two minutes or whatever with the little beetle thing. But um, but I just want everybody to know that you gave me that start on that. And I want to go back around to that because um, Logan, Utah, I mean, I'm telling you, Dave, I I will pay attention to what Utah State is doing now because, you know. Oh, that's awesome. Like, like I, I'm serious. I'm like, I think about you quite often, especially during football season because I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know. I love those guys out there, you know. Yeah, I actually so, did their in-stadium announcing for one season, and then did the, you really? Oh yeah, I was the in-stadium announcer for the Utah State Aggies. I it was right before Kevin Love started playing, and uh, 
I just really enjoyed it. But, you know, like everything, when you use your voice, you don't get paid very well for it. And I decided I don't want to do this nope. and not get paid for it. Right. Because, you know, work. it's like almost I've never understood something about radio where I think prices on stuff in radio are way too negotiable. Uh-huh. You know, like, like, well, can you I actually had a guy call me not too long ago from a big, a big company. And he's like, hey, we want you to image all of our classic rock and classic hit stations. I said, well, that sounds great. I'd love to do it. All around the country. Called me back the next day and asked me if I could trade it out. Oh. Like, what? Like, what? And, you know, barter it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, he wanted me to go sell advertising time to pay for my salary or something. Uh. I'm like, what are you doing? Uh-huh. You know, this is craziness. Yeah. You know, like I understand bartering out a service or something like that, but I'm not a service. I'm like, you know, I'm the end user. And uh, so I, I just thought, you know, I can't go to McDonald's and say, you know, 99 cents for this, you know, cheeseburger is too much. I think 60. How about 60? You know, like, can <laughs> yeah. I bar, you know, can I bargain my French fries or whatever? You know, no. And um, I think I think we've been giving it away for so long that it, it may have lost its its worth. Yeah. You know. And I, I, I hope not, Dave, you know, and I hope like, I like that you're doing this podcast and all that, but I want to see you back on the radio, you know, because we're, I quit years ago, you know, after I got fired uh, from that morning show, I didn't feel like traveling around anymore. I didn't feel like moving and I kind of gave up and I'm not sure, I'm not saying radio is any worse for it, but the more guys like me that just kind of give up, it, it doesn't bode well for the thing. And like I said, your voice and your knowledge and your appreciation of radio should be on the radio. Like you should literally be like Drew Brees and be able to call your shot when you want to retire. Like this is enough now. Oh man, I appreciate and that. Just just for you, for your own and anybody listening is going through that. Get back on there. You know, we're losing we're losing too many people that are talented and, and love the thing. And you wonder why it's going away. That's why it's going away, because they got all of us to give up. You know, and I don't like that. I, I think, you know, when I listen to your voice, anybody who's listening to this, if you're listening to this and doesn't say and don't say that guy sounds great on the radio or on the podcast, well, then just, you know, you should have your ears cut. Off. But you <laughs> you're you're that good, David. And I, I, you know, I hope I and in your mind, too, I could imagine you're probably saying, hey, you know what? I've had my time. I, you know, time to go move on. Don't do that. No, don't do. That. I'm trying to scrape it. Uh, you know, I'm 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 happy where I'm at. You know, living in Logan, Utah. I love Logan, Utah, and it just didn't work out for me here at, at this particular time. So I am going to be trying to do some voice tracking and still trying to get my little my little company together and all that. And and hopefully I'll yeah. be able to land to doing some voice tracking for some people. But people that appreciate creativity—that's what I, I want. I don't want to be doing two or three minute long breaks at. And a break is, you know, where the guy's trying to be funny or talking about something. Right. I want to be able to do something that is entertaining without just reading cards. And we got into the business of being liner card re- readers in radio for yep. years. And uh, yep. I think that's something that if we're going to survive with all the different entertainment options that are out there right now, including what I'm doing right now, podcasting, uh, radio is going to have to find ways to get back into serving their local community and serving the yeah. listeners and doing something that they can't find every player everywhere else. And that's the cookie cutter approach. 
that a lot of radio stations are going with. And I'll tell you this real quick, Dave. I had a, a friend of mine that I met a few years ago. She's the wife of a friend of mine who is an airline stewardess. And she flies a lot to London, and she'll fly into Boston and down into Brazil. And I asked her about when she was in Boston, what radio station she listened to. And her quote to me was, well, I don't listen to the local radio stations that I go to in all these different markets because they all sound the same. I didn't, I didn't coach her on that. That's what she said to me. And I brought that up to the consultant and they just said, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, consultants and me, I'm not the biggest fan. I hear you. If you're a consultant, if you're a consultant, I'm not going to mince words because you know, (laughs) you're the lowest form of life. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying to become a consultant, man. (laughs) Well, then, then change the business and be a good one. I'm going to try, man. I'm going to try. But, you know, like you said, you want to be entertaining inside of inside of what you're saying and you want to do whatever. So what I would suggest, by the way, next time you do one of these, get somebody better than me. That's more entertaining. But, Ah. you know, we, we used to call we used to call the people on the radio personalities. Right. Right. That used to be the word. Right. You were a radio personality. And when they took that away, well, then what's going to happen? You know, you end up you got to remember that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And when you take something away and leave an empty space, there's something's going to crawl into it, you know? And what's crawled into it is just nothing. It's just become, well, I can turn on a jukebox anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I can go listen to Pandora and Spotify ad, ad nauseum and never hear anything but music. Mm-hmm. But I contend that the guys like you and, you know, every, anybody else listening to this that has something to say in an entertaining or engaging way, whether it's in 30 seconds or in three minutes, go do that. And I'm telling you, fight like a dog for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like get out there and say, I have a way of doing this. And here's what I love doing and do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of don't take no for an answer because I'm, I'm sick and tired of it. I grew to love radio from a young boy on. I grew to love it. And it wasn't because for me personally, it wasn't because of the music. I wanted to entertain and it allowed me to do an entertaining thing. But other people that I've worked with are some of the greatest, you know, music jocks and they know the stuff and they eat, drink, breathe it, you know, and they eat up the music. They know it all. And like you said, some of these interviews you've done, these people, you know, you can make a difference kind of in people's lives just by entertaining them, mm-hmm. you know, bringing them a little bit of knowledge here or making them smile or whatever it is or making them cry if you have to. Um, and, and I say that there may be a place to fight for that. You know, we need to, you know, um, I, if I were you, even I'd, I'd start to look around at some signals in, in Logan and I'd say, Hey, can I get involved in this one? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think we got a spot for, I still think we got a spot for oldies, you know, I like if too. you put on paperback, if you, if you put on paperback writer, I don't know who's not going to listen. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, like, Oh, I like that. You know? So uh, that's just my little take on it. I'm, I'm getting too old now, I think, but <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm 15 years <laughs> older than you are, man. But you know, yeah, well, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna say that. But you, go ahead. You, you talked about it being uh, when you, personalities, and I think what's happening now is maybe, maybe we're seeing a little change because of what has happened with uh, talk radio and news talk radio. And I'm just going to go back to the Dan Patrick Show. Dan Patrick Show, you would think is a sports radio show, but it's not. I mean, they talk sports, but they'll talk anything. And they're storytellers, and I think that is the success of what's going on with the very successful news talk radio stations, that they're not necessarily doing news and talk. They're telling stories. 
And I, I think that's right. a fascinating way. And I think that's what's happening with podcasting too, is people are getting on there and they're not having all the restrictions that, that uh, a, a radio uh, might have. And they're forgetting oh. on radio to tell the story, not only of the song, not only of the radio station, but also of the personality. And when you share something with somebody that's going to make them laugh or maybe even make them cry, these people get a connection with you. And I, I love that aspect of what radio should be. Well, Dave, I saw the, you know, the out, the outpouring, you know, when they let you go, um, like on Facebook and I don't go on much, but I saw that and I saw people's responses to you, you know, and I realized, you know, this guy's played such an important part in these people's lives. And it's, it's that way in every town and village in America, these people that you listen to on the radio, you feel like, you know, them. I think that's why radio was always big. We were talking as neighbors to people. And while it's fun to have somebody, Oh, listen, somebody from Thailand listened to me today. It, it's not about that. Hmm. You know, there, there's stuff in our own communities and things like that. And I'm not a big community guy, but I am in the sense that, you know, we're all in this kind of little boat together in between these city limits. And we have the same ideas. We have the same sensibilities, right? We have all the same stuff. Well, let's just, let's talk about that. And to your point, I learned it in the sports talk realm. You know, these guys were doing a lot of entertaining stuff even back, you know, when I was doing it uh, because they, you know, you just couldn't talk about Kevin Durant for four hours. You know, you had to talk about guy stuff. You had to talk about things that move people and something you could, you know, associate. And we used to do that. You know, when I was growing up, you know, the, the, the seven to midnight guy at a radio station, you know, he was always kind of the, you know, hey, man, what's up? Yeah. Our time and all that. And, um, but they would tell you what was cool to listen to. You know, you need to buy this album called The Wall. You need to buy this album called, you know, Dark Side of the Moon. And here's the entire B side. You know what mm -hmm, I mean? Right. And and the DJ played a part. He was he 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 influenced you. And it's funny because what's the biggest thing on social media, from what I understand, are these influencers. Right. Well, why can't you and why wouldn't you influence on the radio? Why would you not do that? You have a very big wide just blasting out from your microphone. Why would you not influence people to either music or sports or whatever you're talking about? Mm -hmm. And people will listen. You know, build it and they will come. I believe that. I do too. Uh, but you got to be entertaining and engaging. And I apologize for being neither today. Oh, you've done. This has been so <laughs> much fun for me. I can't tell you, dude. But I wanted to get everybody to say that they can get their own Daily Beetle Break by going to your website. Tell us about the Daily Beetle Break uh, website. Yeah, the Daily Beetle Break. I mean, it's more for the stations. You know what I mean? For the mm. stations to come and get them and upload and download, you know, and all that stuff. But on the site, I have a, <laughs> a little video I put together, um, you know, of who's Dave, and it's worth seeing. But every day I update the site to um, whatever song is being played that day and the story behind it and then um, attach the video and things like that of the song. And you and, actually um, you actually did that today because I saw it was Ebony and Ivory by Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. And I, I happen yes. to love that song, man. I really do. You know, it was a whole different thing when it came out. And um, I thought it was, you know, a lot of this stuff shows up because if you have, let's say, 365 days in a year, uh, I don't know that you really have 365 Beatles songs. You know, you may have, I don't know, 200, and I don't remember whatever. But, but it's okay because with all the stuff that they did from the uh, solo careers, it it adds it, it averaged out when I when I when I looked at it all and kind of made up song lists and you know when things should play, and, um, that you do get a good taste of all of that stuff. You know, you, you get a good mix of the, 
solo and and the Beatles and all of that stuff, and even some stuff like uh, you know songs that they wrote maybe you know like uh, I think they produced Mary Hopkin, um, yeah, you know at Apple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on that day at Apple Records, they were like, here's those were the days by Mary Hopkin. You know, we'll even play something like that or a Peter and Gordon song. You know, something that um, you know Paul wrote or something. So it's it's I don't think it ever gets old. I think it it's still the bar. And again, are they passe now? Yeah, maybe. Nah. But I'll tell you, I was born in 1966. So in essence, by the time I came around, the Beatles were not my music. Right. You know, there was a there was an old line in a Tom Petty song. You know, I know Chuck Berry wasn't singing that to me, right? Mm -hmm. But the point was, it doesn't matter if they were singing it to you or not. The music is timeless. You know what I mean? It is. It's that good. And if you don't know it, you should listen to it. And if you love it, then listen to it more because it's good. It's really good. Or I put it this way, I wouldn't take the time to do it. Or, you know, you you wouldn't be seeing 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds out there wearing their Beatles shirts to high school events and to high school because you see that all the time. And I I, right. I, I, I know that the, there, will always, there will always be people that love the Beatles, man. I really do. Yeah, and I and I, but I have to say I appreciate them, but I appreciate you too, David, for letting me do this today. I mean, I, it's so much fun. Thanks for listening to my boring story. I can't wait. I'm going to send you the uh, Paul McCartney interview too. And if you want to, you know, do anything with it that you want, if it's useful, then you know you can have it. But I, I David, I just want to thank you again. And anybody who's listening to this, I'm telling you, David Denton, this guy is one of the best, if not the best. And I I appreciate him, and I hope you listen and support this podcast because he's that good of a guy and he's that good at what he does. So thanks again. I appreciate it. And you know, for us never having met face to face, I think the same of you, man, I, you, you, you do great work and I appreciate everything you've done for me and, and all the kind words. I, it really does touch me and I appreciate that. And that's radio guy reflections, a podcast about radio and the people behind the microphone. In future podcasts, we'll look at what makes us successful and sometimes a train wreck of a radio show. As we say in the radio business, if you put that on the radio, people will listen to it. We'll talk with people who started in radio and moved on to success in other fields. Radio Guy Reflections will be back soon with another show about radio and the men and women who produce the radio programs you've loved to listen to. Radio Guy Reflections is a production of Dave's Voice Works.